0: Well, there's no doubt that Christian missionaries in the 18th and 19th centuries could sometimes be as racist and imperialistic as the general colonialist uh, culture of the time. But actually, the default mode was that they were committed to the good in a way no other colonialists were to lifting education, health, and economic value, as well as bringing the gospel. They just saw their role as doing good at every turn. And of course, the greatest good was that people would know Christ, but they also thought people should know about agriculture and health and education. There's no doubt that Christian missionaries have done ill, but they have also done beautiful things with lasting results. Uh, You know, uh, some of you anyway, that I've been uh, going around the country over the last uh, few months, midweek, presenting screenings of this new documentary in various cinemas. And at a recent screening in Hobart, my Uber driver uh, from the airport to the uh, cinema asked me what I was doing there and I explained that I was... Uh, hosting this documentary and fielding questions about the best and worst of Christian history and I tried to give a really, you know, one minute account of the beautiful things Christianity has done and the awful things and she, without any animosity, said, can you name one good thing Christianity has given the West? One good thing. She seriously had no idea Christians had done any good. From her perspective, it was entirely negative. Now, of course, I said, well, we made the documentary just for you uh, and invited her to come and watch it, but, of course, she was working. Increasingly, there are people who think that the church is only a force for evil, not for good. Such a long way. From the hope of Jesus in that famous prayer he prayed in John 17. I pray that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you may they the disciples also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me may they be brought to a complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even, even as you have loved me. In other words, the divine love of the Father to the Son, the love in the Godhead, the unity of the Trinity, is somehow meant to be present among the disciples so that the world looking on would see that love and unity and believe. That's the ideal. It's the ideal that Paul has in Philippians 2. I hope you have that open in front of you. By the time we get to verse 15 in in chapter 2, which we'll uh, look at next week, it's clear that Paul believes that the Christian community can shine. He says, So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them as stars in the sky. The hope is that the Christian community would shine, would convince the world. And the interesting thing about Paul's argument is that it begins exactly where Jesus begins in this prayer, with a reference to the Trinity, as the foundation of our own unity. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, uh, most commentators detect A reference to the Trinity in these three clauses and you can see it there on the screen obviously God the Son is referenced in the words encouragement from being united with Christ obviously God the Holy Spirit in the third clause is referenced the common sharing in the spirit but what about the middle clause comfort from love Um, By the way, the word his, although it's in our English translation, isn't there in the Greek text. I think the English translation gives the sense that it's Christ's love that you might be comforted by. It's not. It just says, any comfort from love. And most think this is a reference to the Father, because in Paul's letters, divine love is almost always the love of the Father, not the love of the Son or or of the Spirit. And actually, this has the ring of one of Paul's other most famous References to the Trinity in 2 Corinthians 13.13. 13. We end our services uh, with it each week. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Son, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Interestingly, uh, the word fellowship there in 2 Corinthians is exactly the same word uh, used in, uh, in Philippians two. Translated, though, common sharing in the Spirit. So it does seem that this is a thing Paul likes to say. He likes to refer to the Son, Father, and Spirit. The fourth clause there, by the way, in case you're wondering what that hanging clause is doing, if any tenderness and compassion, um, probably just means any hint of that loving compassion of the Trinity, uh, either their love and compassion toward Paul or maybe uh, for each other. But the the point is, the Trinity is the source of it all. Now, I admit that the Trinity is a weird concept. Is God three or is God one? And Christians have the temerity to say yes. Yes. Now, I get that this uh, creates a mathematical problem. Three, one, one, three... One God who is three persons in an eternal love relationship? It's confusing. But the Trinity also answers what amounts to a profound personal and philosophical question. You may never have pondered this, but it is quite deep and significant for life. How can God be eternally and essentially love if there was no other, no beloved, in eternity, to love or be loved by? Was God only potentially love until he made us to love and be loved by? Well then, love wouldn't be an essential part of God's nature. It would be an add-on quality that was always in potentiality, but never in actuality. But the Trinity answers this question. Eternally, before there was any other to be loved or be loved by God himself was father son and spirit in a loving three-person unity the tri unity the Trinity and I agree that I wish the mathematics of God were you know a little more straightforward but I would sacrifice mathematical ease for a doctrine of love every day of the week the trinity tells me that eternally loving unity is the reality and it's out of this doctrine of the trinity this emphasis on divine communion that christianity gets its massive influence on community which is precisely what paul does in verses 2 to 5. if you have any of this Taste of the Trinity, he goes on, verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. You can hear the sense that you're diverse, yes, but you're one as well. Indeed, the Philippian church was diverse. We know from Acts chapter 16, which beautifully um, tells us the story of how the church at Philippi was founded. Act 16 narrates Paul bringing the gospel around the year 50 into this Roman colony and preaching the gospel and we're given three conversion stories and it's, it's pretty interesting because the first conversion story do you remember in Act 16 who was the first convert in Philippi? Lydia, who was a dealer in purple, yeah Dealer in purple cloth, which places her in the elite band of the economy of the Roman world. Dealers in purple were dealers in sort of the high fashion of antiquity. The very next story, the next paragraph, is someone from the lowest end of the social spectrum, a slave girl who's demon-possessed. She's converted and thrown into church with Lydia. Huh. Already we've got an interesting recipe. The third conversion story in Acts 16 in Philippi is the Roman jailer. Remember, Paul gets into trouble for converting this slave girl and is thrown in jail. And Paul thinks that's fantastic and he's singing hymns, you know, uh, to Christ. And the jailer overhears and thinks, I should probably become a Christian. And Paul says, yes, you should. And he and his whole family are uh, converted and baptised. But a jailer falls right in the middle of the social spectrum. We've got the highest Uh, status in Philippi the lowest status and a jailer to boot and they're all thrust together in this social experiment called the Christian church now 12 years later when Paul's writing to them we can only imagine that the church has grown over that decade uh, in precisely these different sociological dimensions they are diverse so now we hear Paul saying but you're one one Like-minded, same love, one in spirit, one mind. This emphasis on the mind is is worth reflecting on because it doesn't mean theological unity, as important as that is. It's a reference to the mind of Christ because the same word phroneo is used in verse 5 in reference to Jesus. And that sort of tells us which mind the Philippians are meant to have. In your relationships, verse 5, with one another, have the same froneo, mind, as Christ Jesus. The one mind of the church is nothing other than the mind of Christ, which is the mind of putting other people first, verse 4. 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others. Community, reflecting the Trinity. Our church vision centers on community, doesn't it? We want to be a center of community. First a Christian community, and then as the overflow of our love, we want to offer community to others. Here's how our vision puts it. In short, a community of Jesus Christ offering a center of community for Roseville and beyond means being a focal point of biblical truth, evangelism, friendship, social care and action, diversity, creativity, intellect, events, health and fun, all grounded in a confident, well-articulated conviction about the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of life. In other words, our vision to be a community and offer a center of community is not about being a really successful social club. We're not a club. We're a bunch of worshippers of Jesus Christ. We believe Christ is the Lord of all things. And so we want to offer all good things in Jesus' name. Which is precisely what Paul goes on to say in verse 6. What starts out as a reflection on community suddenly pivots in verse 6 to a hymn about Christ's divinity. Notice in your Bibles, verses 6 through to 11 are set out as a poem, right? It's set out exactly like this in the Greek text uh, from which this English translation is made for the simple reason that it's clearly some kind of poetic device in two stanzas. One stanza describing Jesus' glory down to the cross and the second stanza uh, describing from the cross back up uh, to glory. What I find remarkable about uh, this is Christians were singing these hymns. And Paul has taken a a hymn, either he has composed or was well-known already and placed it beautifully here in Philippians 2, fits perfectly. But it's just the sort of thing we know from non-Christian evidence that Christians were singing. Do you remember in that... um, endless revelation series that you've just endured. Um, I kept on referring to Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia, writing to Trajan, the emperor, asking whether he should keep killing Christians. He said he's perfectly happy to keep killing Christians, he just can't work out what's wrong with them. The only crime he could find, according to his letter, is this, the sum total of their guilt or error was no more than the following, they had met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sung antiphonally a hymn to Christ as God. There are a few things to think about there. Church was before dawn. For the simple reason that the Christians decided that church services should be on the Sunday, first day of the week, because that coincided when Jesus was raised to life, but Sunday in this period was a work day, it was the first working day of the Roman world, the Roman week. So what do you have to do if you're working? You've got to do church before the sun's up and that just, was just the norm. And they would sing antiphonally you know that's when this side sings one line and this side sings the other line okay lovely stuff but they sing to christ as god wow philippians 2 is just such a hymn to christ as god look at all the ways jesus is described as god the opening line who being in very nature god He had equality with God, but didn't use it to his own advantage. And then the stanza says Jesus went all the way to the cross. But then the second stanza says that from the cross, he was elevated back to the most exalted place. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That isn't the name Jesus, by the way. Jesus had lots of friends called Jesus. It was the sixth most popular boy's name in first century Palestine. We know from all the letters and... uh, Uh, inscriptions that we have. No, it's the name Lord, the divine name that is Jesus. It, it, It then says, most extraordinary thing actually, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Hang on, but the Old Testament said it was before the Lord God that every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the Old Testament said every tongue would acknowledge Yahweh as Lord. Here's the text that this little hymn is riffing off. Isaiah 45, 23 says, the Lord says, this is Yahweh speaking, before me every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge me. And precisely the same language is pinched and applied to Jesus in this hymn. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. The full divinity of Jesus Christ was central to Christianity from the beginning. We, therefore, are not a club gathered round a teacher who said beautiful things. All this talk about community is really an expression of our worship of divinity, of Christ. We are gathered round as worshippers of the Lord of Lords. And at the centre of our... Being as a community is the self-giving of divinity. In other words, humility, my final point. The most extraordinary thing about this hymn, actually, isn't that Christians could worship Jesus as God so early in the first century, though that's pretty cool. The most extraordinary thing, Is that they could say in one hymn, in the same breath, God and cross. We are so used to this, we miss how bizarre that was. God on a cross. Verse 6, in very nature, God. Verse 8, even death on a cross. Humility wasn't even a virtue in social relations in the Greek and Roman world, let alone a characteristic you would ascribe to divinity. You don't have to just take my word for it. Here's Australia's greatest Roman historian, Edward Judge.
1: Humility in Greek and Roman ethics would be a degrading thing. To put yourself down
0: to a level that you were not born to or that you're standing in life did not require you to be in, was disgraceful and debasing. There was no virtue in it at all. And yet, verse 3 asks us, in humility value others above yourselves. And verse 8 says of Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself all the way to the cross. Absolute majesty Gave himself in total humility. Here, then, is a pretty good definition of humility, because um, humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. Humility isn't about thinking, oh, I'm not, I'm not really good at anything. I'll just sit in the corner. I'm a mat. Come walk over me. That is not humility. Christ didn't think he was a mouse who should sit in the corner or a mat that you could walk over. Jesus had a very high view of himself. Yeah, he's walking around knowing that he created the universe. He doesn't have that psychological sense of humility. That's not what humility means. Humility is not a psychological virtue, but a social virtue. It's about knowing all that you have, but redirecting it for the good of others. It's about service. This is something important for those of you who are leaders Of organizations to remember you're not contradicting humility when you're using your powers to make decisions or whatever when you know it's for the good of others the thing you've got to avoid is using your power for yourself with ulterior motive for revenge But real humility is taking all that you've got and using it for the good of others, just as Jesus did. It's considering others better than yourselves. Looking not to your interests, but to theirs with whatever powers God has given you. Humility, in short, is about being active in serving and passive in self-promoting. Active in serving, passive in self-promoting. Which is exactly the structure of the hymn, by the way. Exactly. You notice in the first stanza, the stanza about Christ's humility, he is entirely active. Right? He does everything. And it's all active verbs. So verse 7, it says, He made himself nothing. No one made him nothing. It says in verse 8, He humbled himself. No one humbled him. He's the active agent in serving. But now what, notice this. In the second stanza, which is all about Christ's exaltation, he does nothing. He is entirely passive. It's the Father, we're told, who exalted him to the highest place. He didn't exalt himself to that place. Um, It's the Father that gave him the name that is above every name. He didn't take that name. Active in serving, passive in self-promoting, and as soon as you spot that, it opens up verses 3 and 4 in, I think, a very special way. Because it's exactly what Paul is, is saying earlier in verses 3 and 4 about our own lives. Let's read it again with that in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Passive in self-promoting. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Active in serving. Not looking to your own interests, passive in self-promoting, but each of you to the interests of others, active in serving. No wonder, he says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. This is nothing other than allowing the gospel to show its fruit in your life. Do you remember last week i said in chapter 1 verse 27 that most um, commentators see 127 as the heading of the whole letter to the philippians it's the first actual command of the letter and really everything else flows from it whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ and you remember maybe i uh, do you, maybe you remember i said that those words conduct yourselves in a manner translate the word citizenize citizenize The word citizen in the verb form means live as a citizen according to the gospel of Christ. And now we get into chapter 2 and we learn this is what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. Jesus, with all that he had, humbled himself to serve the world, reconcile it to God. And then completely passive in his self-promoting... The Lord, the Father, exalted Him. In the same way, we are to be active in serving, passive in self-promoting. Trinity, community, divinity, humility. Trinity, the triune God, the unity and love of Father, Son, and Spirit. And out of this Trinity comes Christian community as we reflect oneness despite our diversity divinity we are not a mere social club trying to follow some human constitution we are worshippers of the divine lord jesus christ who displayed his glory most in his humility that willingness to be active in service passive in self-promoting This is God's word to us tonight. So Lord, will you help us by your spirit to understand these things and apply them to our lives, that indeed we might shine, that our love for one another and the world might display the gospel we preach to the world. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This week I've asked uh, Annette Ware, uh, who is... uh, What are you? Head of senior? Where have you gone in here? Head of senior school at Abbotsley? Something like that? Junior school? Dean of, dean of senior college. That sounds even better. So come, come on up um, uh, uh, to, to reflect with this. But also Craig Roberts, um, who was the minister of St. Augustine's Neutral Bay and um, now is uh, the... CEO of Anglican Youth Works, uh, which looks after all the kind of youth ministries uh, of the diocese and uh, really significant uh, position, but he's only just taken that up this year, um, new in the job. Um, it's fantastic that you're both willing uh, to do this. Um, can I say, Annette, first um, tell us what you made of this passage, um, just to give everyone a sense. Through this series, what we're doing is I'm sending uh, a couple of people uh, my exegetical notes early in the week and then just leaving it to them uh, to say what the passage means uh, to them. So Annette, we'll hear from you first, if that's okay.
2: Yeah, look, um, as I pondered on this passage during the week, um, there were two two things in particular that really um, grabbed my attention. And they really fall into um, the two sort of uh, neat sections in some ways of this passage. So verses 1 to 4 and then secondly, you know, 5 through to 11. So... Um, The idea of being united with Christ, um, in other parts of the Bible it might say united in Christ or united to Christ um, is clearly a a key reality of what it is to be a Christian. Um, And as I pondered that I thought about the fact that unity and being united with Christ or united with fellow believers is is not having uniformity. And John you've you know, talked a bit about diversity tonight. Um, I think unity and uniformity are, are very, very different. Um, and you know, it's interesting that you referred to you know Lydia and the slave girl and, and the jailer, and um, highlighting just how very different those three people were.
0: And we've um, got rid of that problem in the modern <laughs> world because of suburbs, right? We got rid of all yeah. the people that aren't like us.
2: Yeah. Well, what it made me think was that. Um, I guess I I went from thinking about Christian community or even our community here and just the notion of um, we are united with Christ um, and we are united to one another because of that absolutely fundamental um, key uh, uh, focus for all of us. Um, But that doesn't mean that we have to be uniform. We don't think the same way. We clearly have differences. And... Then I went from thinking about that to thinking about, well, my work situation, and no doubt the, the work situation for many people, where if you're building um, in the workplace, you wouldn't necessarily talk about building a community, you might talk about building a team. The idea of underlying unity, yet diversity, usually makes for a really strong and effective team. Um, and so then I kind of flipped back to thinking about St Andrews, and I thought, you know, bring it on, the diversity. Uh, diversity is a great thing. Um, diversity in ways that we think, diversity in skills, diversity of gifts, diversity of experiences, diversity in cultural backgrounds that we come from. Um, It's when we actually bring diversity into play at the same time that we're united over something that is absolutely uh, fundamental and core that I think we actually are well-placed to um, be the best kind of community that we can be. Um, So that was kind of some of the things that I was mulling over during the week, this concept of underlying unity. uh, That has to be there, but also the the beauty and the benefit of diversity. Um, Diversity without unity, you end up having a fractured community. Unity with no diversity, I think we're not delivering the best that we can. Um, And then the second thing that I was mulling over was um, this idea of... um, uh, Jesus entering our world, and in um, in school context, we often talk about um, incarnational ministry, sort of uh, uh, coming alongside of people and um, doing life with them, and um, and so I uh, clearly the uh, Jesus humility and his um, uh, service of others is is absolutely beautiful and and um, so clear in this this hymn, um, but perhaps if we actually also And maybe it's stating the obvious obvious, that Jesus actually entered into our world. And it was interesting just um, looking at that um, video clip of William Carey. um, Beautiful example of somebody uh, from history entering into the world of others. And I thought, okay, if if we as individuals and we as a a community here, if we take away that um, beautiful notion of being um, people of humility and people of service as Jesus was... But perhaps we also think um, quite strategically about what it means for us to actually enter into the world of other people just as Jesus entered into our world. And I kind of thought, you know what, it's kind of what I seek to do all the time in my workplace when I'm at school with kids and you try to enter into their world um, and with colleagues, but for me personally, when I come home from work, um, I don't have a lot left in the tank mm. to enter into other people's worlds. And yet I know how important that is. It takes time. It takes effort. Um, it requires listening and sometimes just being with people to enter into their, their world. But you know, it's, I don't have a, an answer. It was just something that I was thinking about and the importance of actually entering into other people's worlds. Mm. And um, yeah, something that, you know, may have relevance for us to ponder a little bit more as a, as a church community, what that means for us to um, enter into the, the lives of not only people within our own community, but um, people in Roseville and beyond, just as our, our, um, our church prayer says.
1: Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Craig? Um, well, just building on something that, that Annette said about the, the power of diversity... Uh, I was forced to do some stuff earlier in the year with my new role with the Australian Institute of Company Directors, thinking about what makes for effective organisations. And uh, they've done studies around what makes for effective companies and at board levels, the greater diversity you have within a company's board around a common united goal, the greater the organisational effectiveness, greater shareholder return, stuff like that. So who would have thought that God's playbook in the Bible, Unity and Diversity actually make sense in all of life. You know, who knew? What a surprise. <laughs> um, but as I read this passage, um, uh, thinking about what I might, well, uh, what I uh, saw, So, what, what it means to me, I thought, leaning back into what we heard last week about that, that first command in Philippians, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it, it it struck me that this passage tonight, verses 1 through to 4, uh, give us some specific examples of conduct worthy of the gospel, and then that, that early Christian hymn of verses 6 through 11 give us the greatest example of conduct worthy of the gospel, that of Jesus himself. And it, it occurred to me, and this was it, it came to me again as you were speaking, John, The big idea for me is, out of this passage, whatever happens, be like Jesus. Um, A few other things, I'll come back to that, but something else that struck me, this uh, hymn, it was obviously around when Paul wrote this letter, which was, what, 60 AD, plus Mm -hmm. or minus? Um, That means the hymn was probably getting around town by, you know, 45, 50, say. Um, Jesus died and rose again, you know, mid-30s the very first Christians always saw Jesus as God mm. and I, I compare that to the the evolution of Buddhist thought it took 200 years for the followers of Buddha to promote him from top bloke to divine and there's evidence from writings, Islamic writings in the 7th and 8th centuries AD that they were still working out what they thought about Muhammad and, and Allah but Right from the get go by contrast, Christians have been unashamed, unapologetic in declaring that Jesus is Lord and, and he is the the supreme example of love and humility, and so uh, the the starting point to greatness is becoming a servant, which is what Jesus said um, and, and I compare. What we learn about Jesus in that hymn with what we know of the first man in the Bible, Adam. Adam was made in the image of God, but Jesus was in very nature God, God himself. Um, Adam, in his choice, he grasped to be like God, but Jesus, in his choice, set aside his divine exalted status. And Adam, in disobedience, exalted himself. Christ, in his obedience allowed himself to be humbled and the result well the result of Adam's disobedience was condemnation and brokenness but the result of Christ's obedience was his exaltation and blessing and wholeness for all of us and and I I come back to where I started um, going back to chapter 1 verse 27 whatever happens be like Jesus it actually works
0: yeah. Thank you. Um, we're very happy to take uh, questions um, or we very, are. very brief comments.
2: And I also have um, the phone if people would rather text in their message. Um sure. The number for that's on the inside of your... Um Mine's a really little question, um, but maybe it's got a big implication. I don't know. Um, in Isaiah it says, at the name at the name of God, every knee will bow, but in Philippians it's different tense, different mood, it says should bow. Any comment?
0: Um, no other than I, I think the sense is this happened so that this should happen um, it, it's not it's not really. I mean, yes, everyone should, <laughs> uh, but, it, but it really means this will be the fulfilment of what's happened. This happened, Christ was exalted, given the name, so that every knee should bow. It's just, I think it's just a grammatical way of saying this will be definitely the result of Christ's exaltation.
1: I've got a little
2: one for you while people are thinking. Um, diversity, and John, you mentioned that our suburbs have taken away a lot of our diversity. Mm. But we still have diversity of, of thought, I think, as Annette yeah. mentioned, across this, um, this room, across our four services. I'm sure there's a lot of diversity. Across the diocese, across the country, across the world, and across denominations. I wonder how we um, portray more unity to the world across denominations.
0: Hmm. <laughs> well i think we should um i think we should be absolutely committed to that because the i mean jesus said the unity of christians uh will somehow display the love of god to the world and so if christians are seen to be cutting each other down across denominational lines it it sort of seems counter to, to the gospel now this isn't to say that we are to be undiscerning i mean a good friend will always point out a disagreement um but that's got to take place in the context of friendship. One, I think, really prime example in recent years of uh, this attempt to show unity across denominations was our Archbishop's um, very happy uh, acceptance of the invitation to preach at Hillsong, um, where he shared a platform with Brian Houston, and a couple of people were, well, more than a couple, were disturbed by that, but Glenn just thought, you know, um, we obviously believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ, and this is a great sign of fellowship. It wasn't like he was trying to advertise everyone should go to Hillsong, but it was these are my brothers and sisters, and I want to you know share the platform. So there are ways that we can do that at the top level uh, for those of us who are Archbishop, um, but we can do it in the way in the language we use uh, to speak about um, Hillsong or, or even Baptists like Santino. Um, <laughs> You know, we can uh, we can just show that love and friendship without giving up the things that we think are problematic across these lines. I don't know if you guys wanted to add anything.
2: Yeah. Um, sure, there are differences, and sometimes the differences are quite significant. But in many cases, um, in the vast majority of cases, I think we share so much in common um, with our brothers and sisters uh, Right across the world, whether it be the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, different Protestant denominations, Pentecostal churches, yeah, there are differences. But I think we're very prone to focusing on the differences and largely ignoring the the huge um, bulk of things that we actually have in common. Um, You know, the sort of ecumenical movement um, that you know, is attractive to, to some Christians that probably hasn't really taken off and been particularly prominent in many circles that, that we mix in. Um, I guess it's been an attempt to try and bring Christians together across different um, traditions. But, yeah, it'd be great if we could, you know, even amongst our friends and neighbours, um, you know, be intentionally focusing on what we do, share in common, um, you know, not denying that there are things that we might hold very... Uh, Strong views on that will be different, but hey, let's let's work on what we share in common. Let's find our our unity with them around the things that you know are most most dear.
1: If I could give an example, Um, in last week's question time at this service, um, we ended up um, talking about SRE Scripture in Schools, and uh, for my sins, I sit on a I represent the Anglican Church in the SRE space. And uh, we have decided, uh, with all the other Christian providers, you know, as I sit around this, this boardroom meeting once every two months, I think, yeah, you, you I, I go around all of them. I could pick a fight with a lot of you um, over things that I think you have got wrong, and I think you are doing um, a, a disservice to the gospel, and I don't think you're reading the Bible correctly. Um, but for this purpose, in this context, we've agreed that we're going to work together and, and unite around the things that uh, we can agree on. And, and we disagree in agreeable ways. Uh, but one outcome of that is, uh, at the moment, uh, which is great news, 740,000 flyers have been distributed to every public school in New South Wales explaining what Christian SRE is to allow every single parent informed choice about what they do with their kids in, in Scripture which I think is a wonderful example of uh, Christians from uh, many different denominations uh, uniting together around their desire to commend Jesus.
0: Yeah, because the forces ag- against Christianity at the moment are increasing and, you know, in an emergency situ- situation, that kind of unity of purpose is, is crucial. Yeah.
2: There was one just here. Um, just a comment, um, when you are talking about community and um, stepping into someone else's world and deliberately doing that, I think there's also the flip side, and I think it's also modelled by God and Jesus, of the desire for it to be the other way as well, for that person to step into your Life and into your community, um, and I think that's only when, like the time that you'll have real community, is yeah. when it's a two way thing yeah. that you're willing to open yourself up um, to the other person stepping into your life.
1: So. Yeah, so let's do that, huh? <laughs> whatever happens, <Yeah>. whatever happens. <laughs> thank you, guys. All right,
2: thank you, thanks, guys.